Hello and welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. I'm your host, journalist Holly Rubenstein, and here each week I'll be speaking to a very special guest about the seven chapters in their life's travel diaries. From their earliest childhood travel memory and the first place they fell in love with, to their hidden gem and what's at the top of their travel bucket list. We'll be uncovering their adventures around the world and the travel experiences and destinations that have shaped their lives. How are you doing, everyone? How has your week been? I hope that you're all keeping well. Here in England, it feels like summer's finally arrived, which has been glorious. So nice to spend a bit of time outside. So good for the soul. And today was actually meant to be my season nine finale. But as you might have seen on my Instagram, after four years of trying to manifest the wonderful Joanna Lumley as a podcast guest. She is finally joining me on the podcast in a few weeks time. I'm so excited. This means that you'll get today's brilliant episode and then the next couple of weeks we'll be revisiting a couple of my all-time favorite episodes from the archives now that we've got over a hundred to pick from. And then on June 20th, put it in the diary, we're going to be joining joined for a whole hour by Dame Joanna Lumbly and let me tell you it is everything I'd hoped for and more. Okay on to today's extraordinary guest another guest that was everything I'd hoped for and more. Megan Hine is a survivalist and wilderness guide who has carved her path in the fiercely competitive world of adventure travel, producing some of the biggest adventure and survival shows on TV around the world. Her big TV break came working alongside Bear Grylls on his hit show Man vs. Wild. And from there, her career has absolutely flourished. She's led talent and film crews in the world's toughest environments for over 20 years. A seasoned adventurer, Megan has an insatiable hunger for exploration. Armed with her unwavering spirit and an arsenal of survival skills, she's also led expeditions around the world from the arid deserts of the Sahara to the icy tundras of the Arctic. She has this remarkable ability to adapt to the harshest conditions and think on her feet, which has earned her the admiration of both novice adventurers and seasoned experts alike. It's why all the top people turn to Megan to help them make their adventure dreams come true. Interestingly, Megan is also a qualified resilience coach and has a degree in psychology. And she has a real fascination with the psychology of survival, which she uses to help clients overcome mental health struggles. And many of these techniques feature in her best-selling book, Mind of a Survivor, which we talk about today. And I found it really interesting, this part of our conversation about how to apply techniques that you would only really encourage counter when you're in a survival environment but how they can then be adapted to real life everyday scenarios so fasten your seatbelts and get ready to embark on an unforgettable journey with us today full of heart-stopping adventure invaluable life lessons and the transformative power of travel from panama to tibet new zealand to mongolia let's get started Megan Hine, welcome to The Travel Diaries. It's great to see you today. I caught you in a rare moment here in the UK. How are you? I'm so good. I'm so excited to come and join you. Thanks so much for the invite. Oh, you're so welcome. And you're just back from Panama? Yes. Yeah, I've just had the most crazy location scout for a TV show. I spent four days in Malaysia and then went from Malaysia over to Panama for a week looking for just that quick hop oh my goodness like the jet lag was insane (laughs) so I'm like I'm still really I'm not sure what time zone I'm on right now (laughs) tell me about Panama oh Panama's uh, incredible it's somewhere that I've worked a lot so I've been working as an outdoor instructor and guide since the age of 17 and I now mostly do TV safety work and producing, uh, which I've been doing full time for the past 15 years in some really cool locations around the globe. Uh, but Panama, um, I was out there looking for locations for a new big adventure show, uh, which cool. is, is super exciting, actually. It's a new format. Love it when you get a new format in because it 
creative slate is clean. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's brilliant. Um, but Panama, it, we're looking for like jungle islands. Um, so that, that ultimate desert island. I filmed out there a lot around the Pearl Islands. Mm-hmm. which is just incredible and there's like saltwater crocodiles like these things are massive um and mangroves and all of it it's just beautiful absolutely beautiful so are the pearl islands um a place that you would like go on holiday to or are they super remote only kind of used for jungle type filming yes yeah, so, no, the pearl islands are it's just beautiful they're a holiday destination in the north so they're an archipelago so up in the north the locals from Panama City will pop over uh, for the weekends. Uh, but the further south you go, uh, the more kind of remote and wild these places are. Uh, and there's you know, some incredible wildlife down there. You've got like the leatherback turtles are in at the moment and mm, wow. uh, saltwater crocodiles mm. uh, and all sorts of really cool bird life and things down there. Um, so that tends to not be so much of a holiday destination that far south. How interesting, though, to know that you could visit in the north. That sounds like a kind of, is it like a Maldives-y type vibe? It is, yeah. The uh, the sandflies are a lot worse than the Maldives. The sandflies, <laughs> yeah, did you yeah. say? Yeah, and yeah. I, was actually, I was filming in the Maldives last year, actually, for a big uh, Indian show. We had a big Bollywood star that came in and we set up him up like, um, a big like adventure journey through the Maldives. And I realised because we were working behind the scenes around the Maldives, I realised like how man-made they are. Um, whereas the Pearl Islands is not. um, And I was really disappointed. It was so, it's so beautiful. And those atolls are absolutely stunning. But all those islands are actually being built up because of global warming and rising uh, sea levels. They're actually man-made, which is really quite depressing, really. Yeah, you must, I mean, going to such remote locations, you must see such um, a contrast between, between, like you say, that is such a good example between the Maldives and, and, and the, the Pearl Islands because you must see such a contrast between habitats that have been totally preserved and are intact. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I did. Um, I actually, had, it was quite a funny one, I suppose. In um, in China uh, a few years ago, uh, just, just pre-COVID actually, I'd, we spent quite a lot of time, maybe four or five years, with uh, spending about three months each year out in, in China. And I remember like, I was working in one of their national parks and it was just absolutely beautiful and kind of going through and like we were doing a big stunt on a waterfall um and i went in so to make these things safe you know sometimes you have to drill bolts into into rock so that we can clip ropes in and things and then we take them out and clean it up afterwards and then on that one i was i went to bolt in or drill into the waterfall and I realized the whole thing was made of concrete and the entire national no. park, like all the water courses, these absolutely beautiful water beaches that are flowing through. It's all made out of concrete. And it's oh, like the artistry God. was insane. But I was like, oh my goodness, like, what the heck? <laughs> that is mental. Do you remember what it was called? Um, I can't remember. I'll have to. I'll, have to I'll look it up and put it in the show notes. notes. Yeah. 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 How extraordinary. Yeah, and I mean, you said mad. that you were there for, for three months-ish, like a year. How much of the year are you spending traveling? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. So pre-COVID, 10, 11 months of the year, I wow. was away. I was literally bouncing from one environment to the next, to the next, next. And it sounds really romantic and glorified and like <laughs> it is exciting. Um, but COVID was a really good, uh, I suppose, showed me that it just wasn't that healthy kind of long term to be uh, traveling around like that. So since COVID or during COVID and now um, I'm trying to work more intelligently and sustainably for sort of my own health really. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, being on the go that much must really, oh yeah. Well, anyway, we're going to cover loads (laughs) of it on today's Travel Diaries. We're going to go through a journey today, Megan, through the seven chapters of your life's Travel Diaries. And what I'm really excited about in particular is to hear about some of these remote and untouched parts of the world that you've been lucky enough to visit because that's such a rare thing. So yeah, really excited to get started. But first, we're going to go right back to the very beginning. Chapter one is your earliest childhood travel memory. Yes. So I remember this, it was very clearly, uh, was I never got to go abroad and I always wanted to go abroad, uh, which is why I've made a career out of it. But uh, (laughs) my earliest travel memory was actually when my 
parents bought a caravan, this tiny little caravan that gets towed behind the car. And I'm, I'm one of four. So it's like six people in this tiny little caravan. Um, um, so like the first summer that we, we did that, I remember just like this real sense of freedom and excitement and like being nomadic. And for me, it just felt like all the pieces of the puzzle had come together and I felt alive and just felt this is, you know, I had no idea at that time that a career in outdoors or adventure was actually a thing. And I, yeah, I just remember, I must've been like seven or eight, I guess. And I just remember just feeling so at home on the road in this like kind of nomadic lifestyle. Wow. Um, and yeah, just even then. Touring Scotland, yeah, in this caravan. Yeah. Oh, so yeah, so you went to, you went around Scotland with your family. What well, do you remember some of the places that you stopped off along the way? Yeah, we went up to the Isle of Skye, um, and up there. And I, I love seals. I've always loved seals. And uh, going up to the uh, there was a there's a seal sanctuary. I think it's in Oban. Um, I'm guessing it's probably still there. Um, I remember going to that, and then going and watching the seals in the wild, and uh, just being blown away by like this kind of like beauty in the mountains. Uh, my dad was a geologist originally. I did a lot of expeditions, so all our family holidays were always out to go into the mountains to go and look at rocks ah <laughs> oh, so I mean you must have taken taken after him in in many ways yeah it was mad actually because I was helping my mum move house my my dad was um was very unwell for a little while um and it just it coincided with the time that my parents were moving house so I was helping my mum mm-hmm. box up their books and things and I found some travel journals that my dad had written and I started reading these things I was like oh my goodness this is like some crazy like stories like of um <laughs> his uh he he used to do like a lot of stuff out in Greenland and this was pre you know satellite phones pre-communication and like these were really remote, very difficult um, areas to get to at the time. Uh, and there were stories of him studying rocks on islands where like the the Inuit would put their huskies onto for the summer. And these things, you know, they're not like uh. nice dogs. Like I've got my dog, my little husky sat behind me. <laughs> they're not, they're not like that. These things are feral. Um, and they'd sit up at night with their like knives fending these creatures off um gosh and and then there was a trip where his uh the leader of the trip i'm not quite sure what had happened but he'd obviously lost the plot and was chasing them through the forest with a shotgun and <laughs> all this stuff i'm like okay well this is where it comes from <laughs> that spirit of adventure was yeah. right there my goodness how interesting and have you gone back to have you gone to any of the places that he went to if you if you like scouted them out for your shows um i have it Complete coincidence. I was in um, Iceland uh, last year. I actually did a ski crossing of Iceland in winter, uh, which hasn't really been done before. There's only a few people that have done that just because it's so, the conditions are so harsh. Um, so from where to where did you go? Uh, so from the south, from Vic in the south up um, to the northernmost point, there's a lighthouse up there. All um, the way? Skied? Yeah. The whole way? up there. <laughs> yeah. How long did that take? Uh, that was, it was, well, it took us 16 days and there were three, three of those days were temp bound because the conditions were so horrendous. Wow. And was it, what was it like? Oh, so Iceland is just, is absolutely magical, uh, but it is so barren. Like the, the climate there is so influenced, it's a maritime climate and tend to get like a lot of um, pressure systems that kind of get stuck there or move through there. So what, there's re- very little shelter when you're out there and crossing and it's the, the wind and the rain. And what I think what catches a lot of people out is that, you can be um, it can be snowing one minute and the next it's torrential rain and everything gets absolutely soaked and it's so difficult to get into the interior that rescue is is very hard. Uh, it's very hard to extract anybody um, and there's a lot of big holes and things that you can ski off and ski into because the the, the land is so new um, that you've still got all the kind of the the rifts and things that are there. Right, that, right, yeah. Wow, that sounds like an unbelievable trip. Obviously, down in the south in Vic and then up into the centre is a place that is, you know, on the on the tourist trail. But what's interesting about more towards the north is that I know that recently a flight route is, has just opened up from the UK where you can fly direct for the first time up further north. Right. Um, so what's it like up there? Because that is much more 
barren and and untouched yeah. isn't it yeah and and the thing is like the interior in the winter is covered in snow you can't access it anyway unless you're going in by um ski mobile or on skis you you can't get in there so there aren't tourists there in the winter because it's only really the road the ring road like that goes around the outside of the the island that's actually accessible right um yeah right. so you, you don't see so that time of year there's like there's nobody like didn't see anybody for the entire time we were out there but up in the yeah, up in the north it's, it becomes sort of, there's a lot more kind of active sort of volcanic geothermal activity and things um that you're going past so yeah we did have we had one there was two of us we had one day where we'd managed to get to the these hot springs uh, in the evening and it was just so nice like just having a bit having a bath after <laughs> two oh weeks oh my of, god I can imagine yeah, no washing <laughs> yeah. and those hot springs are just stunning as well aren't they just that connection to nature Yes, yeah, it was the power of nature, isn't it? And it makes you feel like so small and insignificant. And because I filmed out in Iceland a fair few times as well, uh, and there we're like very lucky that we get to fly around in helicopters and go into the interior and and things by helicopter and go to areas which you know, there is there aren't roads and things out to. And just seeing like the sheer like as you're flying over it and seeing like the geothermal activity, it just it's just incredible like the power of nature uh, and the forces behind it it makes you feel very small and <laughs> very weak yeah totally agree and so what then so you were saying how obviously you were inspired by your dad you would you felt like this nomadic energy that inspired you when you were in the caravan how then did you turn that after school into becoming your job like wh- how, how did you get into it in the first place all the way through school, I, I didn't realise that there was um, there was a career outside of academia. Both my parents had worked very hard to get themselves out of uh, the situations that they were in when they were children. And I think being the oldest, it was assumed that I would follow suit. Right. Uh, but I, I always found it incredibly difficult to sit still uh, in a classroom uh, within four walls. I was always like, I was always needing to move around. And you know, in hindsight, I now know it's because I have ADD. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. Okay. So actually sitting still is, is incredibly difficult and it all makes a lot more sense now. How interesting that you've then chosen this career path. It's the perfect one for you with with that condition would you say it is absolutely um because uh, one of the symptoms of it is that it, it's very very difficult to focus on one thing and the work that i do within the tv side of things it's like i'm over the creative side of things so the storyline but i'm also in charge of the safety so i've you know i've got helicopters i've got boats i've got a film crew and i know where every single one of those people are and where all the kind of assets all are um, for the show and what they're doing. And my brain works best over that when I've got this massive moving picture and I'm moving the parts around inside that. Um, so it works very well. So actually, yeah, I, I now don't see ADD as, or, um, as, as a real issue um, because I know that it's actually very good for, for the work that I do. It's very helpful. Yeah. Um, for that and it's just unfortunate that a lot of young people do have have it and, and older people as well um do have it and we're kind of forced into a structured uh schooling system which doesn't necessarily cater for people that do have conditions like that yeah and then what was the big break uh i, I was involved in the military cadets um and as well as also going off and doing my family holidays with my dad where we'd go climbing and into the mountains and and things Uh, the military cadets uh, had loads of opportunities for adventurous training um which Mm -hmm. so i'd be going off winter climbing in scotland uh and whitewater kayaking and doing all these amazing activities that i absolutely loved and i found myself come alive and i found i was in my element and that drive to push myself to see what i was capable of in those environments just became, yeah, became a real focus. And I've really found myself in that. And so I, I had to, I actually got given a place in Sandhurst to go into sort of into the military training. All um, right. Yeah. And just, but decided I was going to take a year off between um, that and school and went off to New Zealand for a year. And I went out on kind of one of these gap year exchange program things and end up I was placed in a school and after two weeks of photocopying and making tea I was like <laughs> I'm not spending my year doing this this sucks <laughs> so I bought I bought like a little car for like 200 dollars and um 
drove off around the South Island. I ran into a couple of guys who just started an apprenticeship in an outdoor center. And they said, well, why don't you give them a shout and see? And amazingly, the woman who was running the outdoor center was a fellow Brit. And she was like, yeah, we need we need a girl. Come and come and join us. So I then spent the rest of the year like training as a raft guide and taking people into the backcountry around New Zealand. Amazing. Uh, New Zealand. Wow, yeah, what an experience. Like, there is a career in this. Wow. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So the military stuff is put on hold and I, yeah, the rest is history. And, and, and from there to TV, how did that work? Um, so yes, I suppose like a series of events, and this is why I say like, you know, oftentimes if you've got like one goal in mind, you're so focused on that goal that you miss out on all these amazing things that happen on the journey to, to get to that goal. So yeah, I've been in New Zealand. I then came back and did a degree in outdoor studies, which was three years of climbing on a student loan. Um, <laughs> sounds like fun to it me. Was, oh, it was, it was, yeah, it was amazing. It, it was a little bit more <laughs> involved than that, but yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, through that, I, yeah, I found, I suppose I found my place. I picked up my outdoor qualifications. So I'd got my mountain leader, like the, these are British outdoor qualifications for okay. taking people out. So I'd got my mountain leader, which is like an entry level uh, sort of award that allows you to take people out into the hills of the UK and mm-hmm. uh, sort of climbing instructor awards um, and things I picked up while I was at university. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I left uh, or sort of I was coming up to graduation and I ended up getting a, an apprenticeship in bushcraft, uh, which I spent three years doing that and started doing uh, overseas expeditions with them, which was, they were very sort of anthropological based. So actually going and spending time with indigenous peoples around the world and then putting the skills that we were learning with them into practice in jungles and deserts and, and things around the world. And then I ran an outdoor program in a school in Switzerland for four years and was expedition leading in the school holidays. And I started leading for another bushcraft company. Uh, and they just uh, they'd just been asked to do the consultancy, survival consultancy for a little known presenter at the time called Bear Grylls. And ah. it was his, so it's his, the second season of his Man vs. Wild, which is the show that made him big. Um, they'd just taken on the consultancy of that and they needed somebody who could stunt rig. So they invited me along and just tell us what stunt rigging is quickly so so stunt rigging is like like designing the ropes challenges that you see on tv right yeah so so rigging that so decide like figuring out like because there's quite a lot of mathematics involved in like and forces and things involved in yeah ropes Um, and at the time the budgets were so little that a lot of the a lot of what we were doing was like hiding ropes so you couldn't see them on camera because they didn't have the budgets to be able to paint them out in in the edit Oh, interesting. So that was your intro with Bear. And then you've worked with him a ton since. Yeah, I spent I spent 10 years as part of his core team. Um, so traveling around the world with him. So yeah, we'd just be on the road all the time. I'd be first out, I'd be looking for the location, setting up the journey. So the journeys that you'd see on screen, a lot of like the survival stuff that he gets criticized for came <laughs> came from us. <laughs> um, what so, do you feel most guilty about? Which one? <laughs> um, well, I think in the early days, because nobody knew how big these things were going to be. And adventure and survival filming has come on a long, long way since then, partly through the evolution of what we've created um, mm-hmm. a lot of like the shows that you see now that the adventure survival shows are based on what we've developed over the years yeah you have the groundwork you guys put in yeah uh, but in the early days you know there was a lot of stuff around uh, killing animals and things to mm. showcase because we were mm. trying to create the reality of survival scenarios on screen and what you do um, and you know we we did kill animals to for, for use on screen which never sat well with me and I was very very happy when uh, there was that a big pushback from the the networks, um, like particularly the American networks, to stop showcasing that, uh, which was has been amazing. And is that something that you would speak about with Bear? Because obviously he's quite well known for kind of killing and eating like extraordinary things on camera. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Over the years, we had we had conversations about it, and you know how we should manage that and things and you know he then started becoming involved with more conservation charities and, yeah. and things as well um so it's like well how do we stay true to the brand but and showcase these difficult topics but how do we also then you know 
bring him in line with the conservation and um, and things. It is it's very difficult, and he got he's had like a lot of shit over the years from people because of it. Um, and I think you know, in a way, I'm actually think it's a good thing because hopefully it's made people question a little bit more about where where the food comes from. Mm, absolutely. Well, let's pause there and go on to the next chapter of your diaries, Megan. That is chapter two, the first place that you fell in love with. <laughs> uh, Snowdonia. Absolutely. Like Snowdonia, it's my mum's family are from Snowdonia. So we spent um, every holiday, we'd be up here for a week or so exploring and you know, being in the mountains. And my dad is an incredible storyteller. And he would always tell us like the stories, like there's some incredible like mythology and things about about the local area, like dragons and elves and and these things. And he'd always tell us those stories as we're going through. So it always had this real kind of magic quality. And there's something about like the old, the ancient oak forests as you're driving along through the mountains and things. It's just you can just imagine like the the, the elves and the fairies <laughs> and things. <laughs> um, and it's just it's just something about the place that no matter where I go in the world I always end up coming back and during Covid I actually ended up I, I bought a house here so um, I have an old Welsh farmhouse that's tucked away in the mountains. That, oh, uh, amazing yeah. and for people who haven't been to Snowdonia is it a place that you'd recommend to go on holiday if you're not as adventurous as you are? Is it is it accessible for them? Oh, yes, it's very accessible. And there's there's so much history as well. So you've got all the, the castles. There was the some of the castles were built by the English, some of the castles were built by the Welsh, but there's such a rich history in the area. Uh the mm. beaches are, are beautiful as well. Um there's yeah, some incredible huge like sandy beaches and oh, which are your favourites? Uh so near me I've got um I've got Newbra Beach, which is pretty close by. And yeah. Yeah, it's a big forested area and then you've got these incredible beaches and you're looking back on the mountains. It's absolutely stunning. Um, and then you've got Black Rock Sands, which tends to get really busy in the summer, but you can actually drive onto onto the sands there. But I definitely recommend that one out of season. Like, don't go in the summer. It's so ridiculously busy. It's really popular. Yeah, it's like a massive car park. It's like, I don't understand why it's fun <laughs> to go there in the summer. <laughs> Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. 
<laughs> so chapter three, Megan, is a place where you learned the most about yourself. Where would you pick for that? This, I guess, was, um, it's more about, I suppose, people and the the journey. So initially it was New Zealand and that was the first place that I really got to, I guess, kind of experience uh, the outdoors on my own terms in the mm-hmm. fact of it being uh, a potential career path as well. And it was it was really enlightening spending time sort of working in this quite remote outdoor center. It was in the Lewis Pass, which um, is, you know, there's this, you've got Hanra Springs, which is a an area where there's hot springs and there's a few buildings and things there. Uh, and then an hour further up was where this outdoor center was and there was nothing else up there uh, apart from this outdoor center. Uh, so spending like spending a summer up there with other people who were instructing and I just learned so much from them. It was just, it was really enlightening. I think in terms of like setting the stage for the, the next, the next chapters. Mm. And then your book, Mind of a Survivor, which I can thoroughly recommend, um, explains really how you relate these lessons that you've learned to people who are not wilderness adventurers, like to the average person. Can you like tell us a bit about it? Yeah, so Mind of a Survivor was it feels like it's written a long time ago now. <laughs> but um, I mean these are these are pieces of advice that are timeless. Yes, absolutely. And I think I because I spent so much time in very remote uh wilderness environments where the, some of the decisions that I'm making uh are genuinely life or death not just for me but for the people in my care as well um and just seeing constantly seeing the responses that people would have when in these environments uh was just incredible it made me realize that we were in those situations where you have to take ownership for your actions. That how powerful it was to actually go out into into these environments and see. And it just got me fascinated with like you know what makes a survivalist. Like what is resilience? Are these traits that can be transferred? Um, and I think in those very raw situations where you can understand where the fear and anxiety is coming from because you're standing on the edge of a cliff, it's obvious that you're high. There's the potential of falling off. Um, everyone can kind of resonate or understand where that fear comes from, but Mm -hmm. can't necessarily understand how it plays out in our everyday lives. Mm. Uh, And so I have a degree in psychology, which I've done sort of a later date. And I have a fascination with the evolution of the stress response uh, and how that plays out in terms of anxiety and fear and things Um, and tying that into these environments and then bringing those lessons back into everyday life. Yeah, um, yeah, it's, it's incredibly powerful, and it's a lot of anxiety and um, well, and depression and things that that we experience in the modern world are symptoms of our evolution. Um, and often, when you're in these outdoor sort of wilderness environments, those things disappear because the brain is functioning as it was designed to function. So, can you give me an example? Yeah, so I get a lot of, I've had a lot, when I was doing a lot more expedition leading, I'd often get clients that would come along who were on medication for anxiety or depression. And they'd come out onto these trips. And I think it was the, the, the fact of being, you're part of a team. So you're part of a community where we've become very isolated yeah. uh, in everyday life. It's so easy to just do everything online or not see anybody and not really socialize in a other than kind of in those work interactions, which is often highly competitive um, and not always that supportive. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. And so you've got that sort of sense of community. You've got that sense of belonging. You've got a sense of purpose. You know, we're there to survive the jungle or to summit a peak or whatever the, you know, the goal is. So mm. there's a purpose there of what we're doing. There's a routine every day. You have to take ownership of your actions um you have to get up and you have to you know if you're in the jungle make sure that you look after your feet uh so that personal admin is incredibly important and these things you know in modern day life we don't necessarily need to to be doing and we kind of lose touch with those things Uh, and i found that often people on those trips were then coming off their uh medication uh while we're there and i obviously don't advocate doing this without 
um, a medical practitioner being mm-hmm. part of that process. But it was just incredible how many people were actually coming off their medication while we were on these trips uh, and having no problems at all. That's so extraordinary. And yet they were in environments that were probably on paper seemingly more challenging than their homes. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. But I think it's because you can understand where it's coming from. And yeah, um, we've we've got this, there's two parts of our brains, but to simplify it massively, uh, you've got this incredibly primitive primal part that evolved pre-humanity, all animals have it, it's the limbic system, all animals have it inbuilt into them. So it developed in us pre-language, pre-even us as humans existing. Um, and that part of our brain is purely to keep us safe. And it's incredibly powerful. And the second part of our brain is more like what I can think of as like the human brain, which Mm -hmm. is logic and reasoning. And that developed much, much later. And it takes a lot more energy to run. So whatever the primary kind of driver and the primary thing that's going on in our brains all the time is that scanning the environment, like our senses are constantly scanning the environment, looking for threat and danger all around us. And when we've created this incredible modern world, where there's constant simulation of like noise and visual, you've got cars whizzing around all over the place. It's like that primitive part of the brain, that very animalistic part of the brain is like, you know, it's like a rabbit frozen in the headlights. Mm-hmm. It's like, ah, what's going on? It can't totally. understand. Sensory <laughs> like, overload. Exactly. Yeah. And then it takes a while for like, you know, the, the logic and reasoning to step in and go like, it's okay, we've created this. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's like, we end up being chronically stuck in that, sort of that fight fight, or flight freeze response yeah that stress response is like triggered all the time and that's when you know we start getting autoimmune things and digestive problems and health conditions and stress and we're just not designed to handle stress in the way that we've we're experiencing it in the modern world yeah it's so true are there any I mean I'm just thinking about myself here (laughs) I want some of your wisdom are there any top level like major takeaways for the my everyday life that could help to get me out of being in a constant fight or flight state would you say yeah the mindfulness, mindfulness is like it's yeah. a yeah it's a huge thing and I think that there's a big you if you see on social media a lot there's a lot of talk about mental health and and all of this stuff and like how adventures like are really good for your mental health and and then there's a lot of people pushing you know pictures of because we've just had the Everest summiting season (laughs) it being may and so you're constantly like being bombarded if you're kind of into your adventure you'll be bombarded by all of these pictures of people summiting everest and doing all of this stuff and you're like whoa maybe that's what i should be doing for my mental health and that's not the case at all uh it's actually very simple things like going out and for example if you're in london like going out on your lunch break going and sitting in the park and just putting your phone aside and listening to the birds singing like stimulating your senses like look around look at the like little plants that are growing in the cracks in the pavement and bringing Mm. your senses kind of back so you're triggering the parasympathetic nervous system which is the part of our nervous system which brings us back into that state of calm and readies us then for stress again so yeah going for a walk in the park or going and sitting on a bench in your lunch break is is actually far more powerful Powerful. than going and summiting Everest (laughs) (laughs) that I I, also more manageable certainly for me (laughs) (laughs) and affordable as well it's free (laughs) I know we've got a lot more travel diaries chapters to cover but I also wanted to just briefly mention I know that in terms of other challenges in terms of learning about oneself that you face Lyme disease earlier in your life um and may is lyme disease awareness month and um i haven't talked about it on the podcast before but it's also something that i contracted and have lived with the repercussions of since so i wondered if we could just have a really quick kind of conversation about it how did it affect you and and how did you deal with it since uh, so I contracted it back in 2007 i had been working up in the Lake District all summer and I'd been pulling ticks off me and I didn't didn't really think about it. And then I had a month off where I went out climbing in the Alps and I remember having the the um, classic, one of the classic symptoms of Lyme disease is, is what's called a bullseye rash. It's like mm-hmm. a red ring rash that happens around the bite site of a, an infected tick. Um, and I developed that and I knew I knew what it was because I'd been briefing people in <laughs> when I'd been teaching them. This was sort of, I was teaching bushcraft at the time. Um, I'd been teaching them and I was like, you know, to be aware of this. So I knew what it was. I just hadn't understood how serious it can be. 
Um, and I thought, oh, I'll sort it out when I get back to the UK. So I spent the rest of the that month with the, the rash kind of spreading all over my body and having these horrible mm. migraines and just being curled up at the bottom of the crag, like the, the climbing cliff, in absolute agony with these headaches, which I'd never had migraines or headaches before. Uh, and then it would pass and I'd climb. And I basically pushed it into my central nervous system. Um, because you stopping. hadn't treated it. Yeah, because I and I and because I was pushing myself so so physically. hard physically yeah. at the time as well. I just put it into my central nervous system, and then it, it took yeah, it took about ten months to get it back out again. So I was on doxycycline, um, which is an antibiotic, for about ten months. Nothing just seemed to be out, and I had I had Bell's palsy, which is like half my face was paralysed. These are classic kind of neurological Lyme symptoms if you leave it untreated. Yeah, yeah, and you know, aching joints, and um, the worst thing I think is brain fog. It's mm. like your brain is so foggy you can't really concentrate on on doing anything. Um, and my doctor at some point was like, "You've got to stop, otherwise you're going to kill yourself." Because uh, I found it really hard to stop mountain biking and training and, and things. In terms of learning about yourself, I mean, to have the I think bravery really to actually stop is pretty hard. To, you know, that is the hardest thing of all isn't it to actually when when you when your love is to be busy and active to actually stop and let your body heal absolutely yeah I think that's the same with you know a lot of people whether you're facing like burnout or Lyme disease uh, it's very very difficult to stop because for yourself was this a recent diagnosis no so um I was bitten by a tick in my teens but because there was and there still is a massive lack of education um, here in the UK about ticks their prevalence and the symptoms of Lyme disease I also left it untreated for for, in my case years and so I've been really left kind of with chronic um, ailments that have been really hard to shift and tried a lot of different methods in order to try and address them and some more successfully than others but what I really wanted to achieve by us chatting about it is like certainly from my point of view I mean from your experience you caught it in the mountains climbing and I think a lot of people say to me oh I thought that you would only get ticks or get get Lyme disease if you're in the highlands in long grass stalking a deer or up in the mountains I mean for me I contracted it from my mum's lawn in Surrey and and um you know I'm hearing more cases of people pick obviously Richmond Park if you're near to London is like a real hot spot because of the uh, deer community but um it's really becoming far more um ticks are becoming far more widespread in urban areas as well as rural so to have the knowledge to know what to look out for to check your children to check yourself when you've been out in in the outdoors when you come in just do a quick check especially in those like sweaty crevices like your belly button and your armpits mine was in my armpit is just a a good good practice I think even if you're just out having a picnic on the lawn it's not something to be scared of but just to be mindful of yeah and if you do have any flu-like type symptoms, because of course some people don't get the bullseye rash, and I think that that is also something to be mindful of, and some GPs don't even realise, is that 30% of cases don't have a bullseye rash. But if you do spend some time outdoors and you have some unexplained flu-like symptoms, to go to the doctors and know that antibiotics are the the course of treatment. Yes, absolutely. And um, I think it's also, it's, it's definitely worth mentioning that it is not every tick carries it and to, yeah. and also you know to go outside and enjoy being outside and not be overly scared of these things but to to be to have the awareness of the that these things do exist and you know as as holly said you know it's, if you if you're out in these environments and you come back and you do have achy joints or flu like symptoms it is to go and talk to your doctor and tell them that you've been in the outdoors uh, and to get treated and if you get treated straight away, because I've had friends that have contracted and have been treated straight away and have had no issues at all. Yes, exactly. The yeah. quicker you get a course of antibiotics, the less likely you'll have any long-lasting symptoms. No, no. So it's just about knowing, isn't it? So that you know to speedily get to your doctors. Like my husband got one on his foot um, during COVID just in the garden again. You know, he went straight to the doctors and, and just actually preventatively just got a course of uh, three weeks of doxycycline absolutely fine no no long-lasting effects so yeah it's just about about knowing it and um it's I I've 
always been interested to share my experience. I've never talked about it on the podcast before, but because you've also been through it and known how challenging it is. Yeah, I'm, I'm really pleased that we were able to shine some light on it today. So anyway, we digress. Chapter four, Megan, the big one, your all-time favorite destination. I mean, you have spent the last however many years dotting from place to place, which has the dearest place in your heart? So this this does evolve, but at the moment it's Mongolia, um, oh. and it is just, it was everything that I'd ever imagined it to be. Mm. It's just it's so wild, like the history, like Genghis Khan is. Just, I mean, it's an incredibly disturbing uh, story, <laughs> like yeah. most prolific rapist uh, <laughs> ever, um, absolutely horrendous. So I don't really know why we idolise him, but his backstory as a kid and his ability to be able to unite the tribes and bring every bring like vast waves of like humanity underneath one banner is just incredible and the fact mm. that it came from this incredibly nomadic place just blows my mind but just the vibes of being out there a lot of the people still live in traditional gurs like they're kind of yurt like um, structures like tents and they still live like that throughout the year very much with their animals in rhythm mm. with nature mm. It, you've got roads around like the main cities, but outside of that, it's all like off-road um, driving or horseback. And it's just, there's just something about it. The kind of, it just feels so healthy and so natural. Um, I, and I'm sure it's down to that kind of living with the rhythm of nature and the lack of like electricity and, uh, and things. It's just so untampered with, it's uh, just incredible. And is it the untouched aspect of it that you found most appealing that you loved the most or was it the landscape or a combination of both the people like what was it that really resonated with you it's a combination of everything it's a combination of the landscape just being so barren so I was mountaineering up in the uh, Altai mountains Uh, we actually went and put up some new climbing routes up there before my clients then arrived and then I did um, spend some time because a lot of my, the expeditions that I do myself with clients are often to go and spend time with indigenous peoples. So we were living with the Eagle Masters, which mm. are the Kazakh people who live in the western side of Mongolia next to Kazakhstan. And um, they they still hunt with their golden eagles, which are, wow. they, yes, they went. So amazing. It's absolutely incredible. So they, they, will, they, they will go and take um, the a chick from a nest from a golden eagle nest and they take the female chicks because they tend to be bigger and more intelligent than the guys mm-hmm. uh, than the male eagles <laughs> and um, they'll they'll hunt with them so they'll train them up to hunt and they're predominantly hunting for fur so they tend to just oh, hunt right. in the winter yeah so they're when the the animals that they're hunting the coats are the thickest so they provide the most warmth and a full-grown female golden eagle can take out a wolf like an adult wolf that is just it's mental. Insane. So, like, have you have you ever h- held one on your arm? Yes. How, yeah. what, how, like, how, is it is it almost impossible to hold your arm up? Uh, well, when you're kind of holding it uh, parallel to sort of the ground at like ninety degrees to the ground, then yes, it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're much lighter than you think, and considering like the strength of these birds to be able to take out you know, like a wolf, yeah, um, is yeah, it's, it's incredible, really, and and it's not a, a completely male occupation either uh there are female eagle masters as well which uh, which is yeah just is so cool to see now i normally say that chapter four the all-time favorite destination is the hardest chapter but we then move on to chapter five your hidden gem a place that you love that my listeners might not have heard of or know much about and basically you've made a career of going from one hidden gem to another such an unusual position to be in what would you be picking I think underwater is, uh, again, going back to kind of, we've touched on like the mental health side of things as well. And I think something for me that's really important is that because I spend so much time on the road and so much time responsible for the lives and, (laughs) and the, the, the sort of functionality of sort of million dollar film shoots <laughs> um it's you know it's, there's a, a huge amount of pressure um on me um so it's it's finding those places where like your heart like truly sings and you can like be really mindful and present and um, for me what is there's two 
things that I do is like one of them's rock climbing where it's just like it's just me and the rock and it's very mindful and the other one is being under the water um so maybe that's spear fishing but definitely off the coast of the Llyn uh the sort of the uh, the Welsh coast here uh there's some uh. incredible little hidden coves uh things that I know so I know whether if the wind's coming from the north I know that on the south there's going to be some like little hidden coves where the water's going to be clearer and vice versa um so those are my my sort of go-to places to kind of escape when you know I know that I can start feeling like my own anxiety or exhaustion rising how would you spell the place in Wales uh it's the Llyn so L-L-Y-N like the Llyn Peninsula yeah so that's that's the finger that sticks out into yeah of, of Wales but all along there there's like loads of little craggy bits that you can kind of yeah hide. and if you've got a van as well there's some amazing like beach areas that you can like pull into that there's hardly anybody ever there and things. how interesting though that you didn't pick a place that you've been that you have been you know like a, jung- a jungly tv <laughs> TV, tv place that it's actually a place that's like really near to you yeah and I think that's really important because I think you know these places that if, uh, if it's uh, if thinking about sort of mental health and recharging and things it's really important that they're accessible mm. yeah whether it's exactly. you know whether it's the yeah. end of your garden or you know if you don't have a garden if it's like the local park or you know, somewhere that's accessible to be able to get to um where where you can find the magic where you can recharge so during your career Megan you've been bitten by snakes you've been stung by scorpions you've been shot at you've been chased through jungle by an armed drug gang chapter six is your worst travel experience what takes a biscuit I, I know I've only naming some of those things as well <laughs> um well it was, a, it was a few years ago and uh I was I was working out um out in China and yeah we flew into uh, the airport and got picked up and the, the local uh, crew were like at sending you know it's two hours in the bus and we will be we'll be you know where are we going to be filming um and we got in the bus and it's like 12 hours later <laughs> we're still driving uh we've we've obviously up at like we're going up about four thousand meters at the time wow it's like a heart the there's like there was three of us from the uk as flying out as consultants for this um for like this adventurous Chinese show, we were there to kind of help them set set up um, an adventure film shoot. And we're now at 4,000 meters, like half the crew and like the Chinese crew in the back have passed out because we're at height from from the altitude sickness. <laughs> um, and it's like, what on earth are we doing? Where are we going? And then we get to a border and I like realized that we're going into Tibet. Um, and this is an area of um, Tibet that had only recently opened up to the Chinese uh, mm-hmm. and it was an area that it turned out that a few weeks before um, a load of uh, Buddhist monks had risen up against the the Chinese government there and had been shot uh, mm, and we were God. there because all the TV programming everything out there is uh, is government controlled uh, it being communist country and it was a political statement that we were obviously making bringing a film crew and then bringing we had some quite major Chinese celebrities coming in to to be filmed there. Oh, and you weren't um, briefed on this? No, not at all. No, there was no briefing on that. Um, we ended up being held in the hotel for a couple of weeks with no food and no water. Oh, my God. Yeah, so we had, we had uh, there was an exec producer from the UK that flew out. And he was able to bring us out a load of, it's, it's called Huel. <laughs> it's, uh, oh, like, yeah. Yeah, that protein formula. drink. Yeah, thing. yeah. And he brought out a load of that that we were then like surviving on for like um, a couple of weeks. Um, there was some of the Chinese crew were kidnapped at gunpoint and disappeared and were eventually returned. But uh, it, the whole thing was just That's crazy. terrifying. And every time we left the hotel, the Chinese Secret Service or not the Secret Service would go through all our stuff, like literally turn our rooms upside down. You could see that they'd hacked into our computers. So it wasn't subtle. You could see them moving stuff around in the computers and and things. It was just a really, really bizarre job, but it made me realize like how easy it would be to disappear um and to have like an entire film crew just disappear um you just feel so small we we got to the point where uh myself and the other british safety guy that was working with we'd actually created like um an escape plan to to get us out of there um 
God. Yeah. So um, that, yeah, that was that was interesting. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And 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 then how did you? How did it all come to an end? Um, it, it was just it, things just went back to normal. It was like nothing had happened. It was really it was oh my god, how bizarre! Really, really bizarre. Yeah, very strange. Uh, it was definitely interesting experience. Um, Were you applying it, your you know your survival techniques in those moments? Yeah, it's like it's having an awareness. Um, I was having awareness and reality. Um, I think there's a, you know, there's a lot of stuff again, I see on social media and things about this you know, sort of this movement about at the moment about like positive toxicity and, and things about, you know, convincing yourself that everything's positive and everything's that, but actually, you know, I think in these situations, uh, uh, you have to have a realism has to be part of that of mm. like, look and acceptance mm. of like, okay, this is the situation. This is where we're at. Like, how do we figure out the next movement? Like, what what are the potential things that could happen here? And that's a huge part of the job that I do is in writing risk assessments and risk mitigation. So it's like, you know, I look at a scenario and it'd be like, okay, what's the worst situation? What's what's the worst that could happen here? Like, what's the reality and how do we minimize the chances and what can we do to overcome it should it happen? Um, and so in that situ- those sorts of situations, it's like that's the sort of process that you have to go through of like, yeah. well, how do we how do we get ourselves out of this, or how do we make sure that everybody is safe or as comfortable as possible? Hmm. How interesting, honestly, Megan. I could chat to you for the rest of the day. It has been <laughs> so fascinating and enlightening, and really inspiring talking to you. So thank you so much for sharing your travel diaries with us. Our final chapter, chapter seven, is the destination that's at the top of your travel bucket list. Where is left for you to discover that you haven't been to yet? <laughs> oh, well, there's there's two places that I'd love to go to. Um, one is Antarctica, mm-hmm. um, and the other is Alaska. Crazily, I've never been there, and like I've, these are things that I've been manifesting for a few for a while. And totally randomly, last week I was asked to take lead a guy to through Antarctica. Um, yeah, and then yesterday or two no two days ago, I got asked if I would um, do a film shoot up in Alaska. So. Oh my god. <laughs> I'm so happy for you. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. so we'll we'll see see what those see if those those come off and how those those work. But both of those projects, and particularly the Antarctic one as well, because the guy who is just incredible, um, a disabled guy, uh, who who would like to go and do um, uh, well crossing um, in Antarctica, uh, and asked me if I'd help help them manage that and do that. So that would just be such an inspiring trip. Yeah. He's whether I go, you know, whether it works out or not, that's that'd be an amazing trip to follow. He's such an incredible guy. Okay. Right. Well, we'll have to follow along. Um, I'll link to your Instagram and, and and I'm sure you'll link to his, um, when, if, when it happens, but, um, thank you so much, Megan. Those were your travel diaries. Thank you. Oh, I so enjoyed that conversation. What a badass woman Megan is. You can follow Megan on her adventures on Instagram at Megan underscore Hine. And like I mentioned in the episode, I really enjoyed her book, Mind of a Survivor. Thanks so much for listening today. If you'd like to hear more from the podcast, don't forget to hit subscribe or if you use Apple Podcasts to press follow so that a new episode lands in your podcast app each week. If you want to be the first to find out who's joining me on next week's episode, come and follow me on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you. I'm at Holly Rubenstein and you'll also find me on Twitter and TikTok as of a few weeks ago, also at Holly Rubenstein. And if you can't wait until then, remember there's the first eight seasons to catch up on. That's over 90 episodes to keep you busy there. All the destinations mentioned by my guests are included in the episode show notes here on your podcast app and listed on my website, thetraveldiariespodcast.com. Thanks everyone, and I'll be back next week. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. 
It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos visiting some places that have been on my bucket list and while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do? Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.